This is the Go Pack Podcast with your host, Jessica Curtis. Today, we're joined by Adam Geller, founder and CEO of Republican polling firm National Research Incorporated. Adam, thank you so much for taking a few moments out of your busy day to talk with me. Let's get into the results of Tuesday night, big night in Florida. Did we see it coming? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Florida was huge, right? I mean, you know, think about this for a second. A lot of people were talking about this enormous, giant red wave. Well, that certainly happened in Florida. So to that extent, yes, we saw it coming. What people didn't anticipate is, well, it would pretty much only be you know, contained to Florida, maybe a couple of other places. But that red wave that a lot of people were looking for, well, you know, beyond Florida, it was it was not really uh, evident, shall we say. Yeah. How could polling numbers be so off? And, and you know, the, the Republicans, we generally had pretty high confidence that that red wave or red tsunami we've been hearing about was was coming. So, yeah. you know, you're you're the expert with polling. How how do we get to a point where, you know, kind of nationally we're off? like that. You know, it's 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 interesting. There's probably a lot of different explanations. In some instances, I would say that the polling was actually fairly accurate. However, the analysis was off. What do I mean by that? Well, I I will say that for myself, you know, I did a bunch of races statewide and congressionals, and for the most part they were they were reasonably fine. What I think it has a tendency to happen, though, is that some people buy into this this narrative. And so if you have a poll that has a, a candidate down five or six points, but you're anticipating red wave, you're, you're trying to say, well, here's uh, how I think that the undecideds could break or people who refused or what have you. Now, internal pollsters, and I, I want to be clear about this, when I say internal pollsters, Republican campaign pollsters, generally speaking, are very, very good at what they do. And I'm going to say that in my own polling, and I can probably guess in other campaign pollsters' polls, they didn't match what the public polls had to say. And I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing the public pollsters. However, some of those polls didn't match what we were seeing in the internal polls. And a lot of the public polls will kind of contribute to the narrative. And suddenly it becomes this breathless sort of um, um, expectation game of, oh, my God, you know, 54 seats, 55 seats, 250 supermajority in the, you know, it's all this stuff. And and some of it is, is not quite matching what you're seeing in the campaign polling. So I think that public polls have have long been um, a a, a thorn in the side of campaigns. Ordinarily, as a Republican, it's been because they tend to show this Democratic wave. And we always kind of try to guard against that and explain why that's not true. In this case, it may very well have been that some of the public polls were showing this Republican wave that 
you know, uh, we weren't quite necessarily seeing it to that same level. Right, right. And, it, you know, it's it's interesting to me just to hear you talk about that. And I, I kind of think back to 2016 and the presidential and, and exit polling similarly. And I was speaking to somebody mm-hmm. this week about exit polling and all of that. And a lot of people, I think, are not forthcoming with with their actual clear intention of who they're going to vote for for fear of hearing or you know feeling the wrath of someone's opinion it's unfortunate that that's uh that's sort of where we're at these days well we do live in that world you know and so what happens is and and i i saw the same thing i I saw in, in in 2016 in earnest and it's really been with us ever since and so one of the things that i think is really really important one of the things i try to emphasize is it's not enough to simply report the top line data and say, well, you know, our, our, our latest poll shows candidate X and candidate Y, and it's, you know, 45 to 40 or something like that. It's a five point leap. Well, that doesn't really mean anything. That's a, a top line score. 45 to 40 clearly means that there's 15 percent who are unaccounted for. Who are those people? Are they undecided? Are they refusing to answer the question? You know, there, when, when we vote on election day, we know that there's not a choice for undecided or refused. You're choosing a candidate. And so the pollster, their job is to sort of say, well, yeah, there's the 15 percent who are not showing up in the top line. Here's how I think they're going to break in. Here's how I think they're going to distribute. And the way you're going to figure that out is by looking at how they answered all these other questions. Where are they on the generic ballot? which is the question that is, if the election for Congress were being held, who would you vote for, the Republican or the Democrat, without naming names? Where are they on the candidate images? What is the most important issue to these folks? In other words, try to figure out who they are and and what they care about, and try to figure out how you think they're going to distribute on election day. Because a 45 to 40 race, in theory, let's, let's make it a simple example, take that 15%. Pretend they're all going to go for the second candidate. So 45 to 40 in a poll, a top line poll, can end up being 45 to 55, right? If that 15% goes to the second candidate. Mm -hmm. And suddenly somebody will say, well, gee, the poll had it as 45-40, but the election day results were 45-55. Well, the poll was right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The analysis was wrong. The analysis was lazy or missing, but the poll had everything lined up. I think that we sometimes rely too much on simple top line data. And I think that that's one of the challenges, one of the challenges that we face. And I think some of it is is, is going back to your point. It very well may be that some people, they'll tell you how they feel about a candidate. They'll tell you what issue they care about. They'll tell you a bunch of other stuff. But if you ask them, well, who are you going to vote for? They say, well, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to tell you. That's none of your business. Mm-hmm. And so it is it is certainly one of the challenges that pollsters are facing these days. One of many, shall we say. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, more for my my personal curiosity. And, and I'm I'm sure we've had you on the podcast before, but I'm sure our, our audience would be interested in knowing, too. How the heck did you get into this line of work besides being into numbers and the nuts and bolts of things for the GOP? What what led you to um, create National Research Incorporated? Well, First of all, I'm extremely old. I mean, <laughs> I am really, really old. No, 
Uh, and so we have to go back to the dark ages. In, in all seriousness, I've always loved politics. I've always loved political science. Growing up in New Jersey, I was never uh, what I was never politically active. I, I wasn't the kid who was putting up campaign signs for the local mayoral candidate or anything like that. But I always loved kind of um, um, the, the the behind the scenes look, uh, you know, at politics. I, I was a political science major at Rutgers. I got a master's in political science. And I always loved the data. That always fascinated me. Um, I ended up working for a polling firm down in, in, in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years. Absolutely fell in love with it and decided that I wanted to do it on my own. But before I did that, I knew that what, what I was missing was actual practical campaign experience. So I went from working at a polling firm to actually being a campaign manager for some campaigns consulting and advising and being what you'd call a general consultant for some campaigns. And these were local campaigns. These were not necessarily high profile races, but it was where I learned how polls are used and what the difference is between something actionable and usable versus merely interesting, but, you know, not necessarily usable in a race. And so after doing that for a few years and making some contacts, I, I just started my firm and I, I started doing local races. I worked my way up to state legislative and then eventually congressional and beyond. So it was a um, a process and it was something where I just, I feel blessed because it's something I really enjoy, uh, something I continue to this day to learn new lessons. You know, I'm looking forward to going through the the, the lessons of this particular election that just passed, there's a bunch of stuff to know. So so uh, one of the things I, I, I guess I always have appreciated is it changes every year. There's lessons to be learned. There's lessons to be applied. And um, it's one of those businesses where just when you think you have everything figured out, uh, it'll throw you a curveball. Exactly. Exactly. Did you get a sense from uh, voters that, you know, through your various polls, um, what their thoughts were on Trump endorsed candidates, because, uh, you know, a, a, a fair amount of them did not do so, so well on Tuesday. I think that that is a fair assessment. <laughs> and the answer is yes. Um, we did get that sense. You know, uh, somebody was asking me uh, a few weeks before the election, if I thought that there would, in fact, be a red wave or not. And I know that I'd mentioned earlier in the podcast that the red wave was evident in, in Florida. But the answer that I gave at that time was, I do think that there would be a red wave in certain regions of the country. I thought it would be regional. I didn't think it would be national. And the reason I say that is precisely to your point, that some of the candidates didn't quite match the districts or the states in which they were running. Um, and, and you know, there's a saying that everybody's going to be using and saying and, and, and repeating, which is, you know, candidate quality matters. And, 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 and a candidate who is not quite a good fit for a congressional district is a vulnerable candidate. Now, I would also hasten to add, let's throw something else into the mix, that was very, very important, an important ingredient here, which was the Dobbs decision. There are parts of the country where most of the voters are 
strongly pro-life, and that's fine. But there's other parts of the country where there's a lot more pro-choice voters. And you can talk about Republicans who are pro-choice voters. And suddenly they're deeply conflicted when it came to abortion rights. And I'm going to give the Democrats credit. You know, a lot of people in the days leading up to the election were criticizing the Democrats for not talking enough about inflation and crime. And they might be guilty of that because Republicans are still going to win a House majority. And there's still a lot of votes to be counted on the Senate and on the gubernatorial races. So, you know, I'm not necessarily criticizing Republicans too much or giving Democrats too much credit. But I will say this, that abortion issue in some states, in some districts, was consequential. And it conflicted voters. Now, where I see that is in the exit polls. Mm-hmm. A lot of younger people came out. Many of them may not have been recorded in the polling. That's for us to kind of go back and look at. And what was the the disparity between the younger voters, the Gen Z voters, let's call them, and what was showing up in the polls? And to what extent did abortion and the Dobbs decision influence their behavior and their motivation to vote? So these are all some things that came up, and it it does get a little complicated. It Mm -hmm. gets a little bit detail-oriented, but it, it, it really is incumbent upon us to answer those questions and to learn from this past cycle, from this past race, exactly um, what transpired. Sure, sure. And all of this is just interesting to me. The The Wall Street Journal had a poll a few weeks ago that, ab- about the abortion issue, and it mm-hmm. it showed that over the summer, it was the, the hot topic. And, and on the heels of the election, um, when the poll came out a few weeks ago, it was not the hot issue that um, it was in the summertime. But clearly, that is a, in some capacity inaccurate. Well, it's not that it's inaccurate. I would argue that it's very accurate. But if you're talking about a national poll, now let's regionalize it, right? And so like I was saying before, you know, sure, if you're going to na- if you're going to talk about a national survey, it, abortion may have cooled off. But boy, I'll tell you what, if you start looking at some of those congressional races in the Northeast or in the Mid-Atlantic where a pro-choice voter is more likely to be found, and then you look at the exit polls, you can see that it might have been this late Democratic push on those issues that really did motivate some voters. And so, you know, that's one of the things that we need to sort of understand when we're looking at a national poll that can give us really interesting data, really interesting information. But let's also take a moment to look at different regions because, you know, you don't have to be a pollster to appreciate the fact that the Deep South is different than the Mid-Atlantic, which is different than New England and so on and so forth. So in some particular areas, you know, it sounds kind of, you know, it count, it sounds wishy-washy. So forgive me for this, but in some areas it made a bigger difference. And in some areas, it didn't make that much of a difference. Absolutely. Valid point. Before we let you go, final thought. Oh, a final thought. Um, I have no final thought. My mind is a blank. (laughs) I'm, 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 I'm on very little sleep, but I'm happy to give you any. Here's what I think. I mean, as a Republican, my final thought is, is that there's an awful lot of spin as, as we sit here and discuss this now of, what is um, ostensibly a disappointing night for Republicans. I would say when we take back the House majority, that's a good day. Was it in as big a number as we would have wished for? No, that's okay. If we have the House majority and we're able to put a check and balance on the Biden administration 
and we're able to do some of the things that that some Republican members are wanting to do in terms of our own legislation or our own governance. Hey, it's a good day. Now, when we, as we sit here putting this podcast together, there's still a lot of unknowns as far as some of the Senate races and even some of the gubernatorial races. So I would urge everybody to be uh, cautious. We just found out as we sit here that the Georgia a Senate race is going to go into a runoff. All that means that there's still a lot of campaigns left. But I come back to, and maybe maybe this is just me being optimistic, that it is becoming more and more clear that we're going to take back the House majority, even by a narrow margin. And that is, to me, one of the best pieces of news that we can get. And it's something that we should celebrate. Do we want more numbers? Sure. But are we going to have the majority? Absolutely. And that, to me, is very, very optimistic. Amen. Adam Geller, founder and CEO of Republican polling firm National Research Incorporated. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Go Pack podcast. Always a pleasure. Take care. This has been the Go Pack podcast. Learn how we're educating and electing a new generation of Republican leaders at gopack.org.